Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity, they hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web, he who eats their eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed a viper is hatched, their webs will not serve as clothing, men will not cover themselves with what they make, their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no injustice in their, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for, for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressions and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and, and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is, le- is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Have you ever felt like God was absent when you needed him the most? And the real question is, when was the last time you felt like God was absent when you felt like you needed him the most, right? We've all experienced times where we felt like God was absent. I mean, just think about it. If God is all-powerful and God is compassionate, whenever we go through hard times, we might wonder, where is he? Where is God? Where is God when I need him the most? It's almost as if he's absent and he's not there. So it appears. 
And this appears like the problem that God's people were facing in Isaiah chapter 59. God appears to be absent when they needed him the most. And so they wonder, where is he? Where is he? They had faced incredible difficulties when they were deported, defeated, deported by the Babylonians, brought into a foreign country. Um, They were destroyed. They were defeated. They had lost everything. And so the question is, couldn't God have stopped the Babylonians, right, if he wanted to? Where are God's promises? Where is God's power? Why didn't he hear us when we cried out to him? And so that kind of leads us to uh, last week's verse in Isaiah 58, verse 3. Remember what they said, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So what made things worse is they even cried out to God, and God did not hear them. God did not listen to them. God clearly said last week that he did not listen to their cries, and he would not listen to them. So what is our tendency to do at times like this? How do we respond to circumstances? And we've done everything we can do. We've cried out, we've gone to church, we've done everything we can imagine doing, and God does not seem to care. He seems to be absent. Well, what we do is we tend to blame God, don't we? We say there must be something wrong with God. Either God is not powerful enough to save, or he's not compassionate enough. Either he's not able to save, or maybe he is able, but he's not caring enough, he's not compassionate enough, or maybe he's very compassionate, but he's not able to save. We think there must be one of those things that we're missing here, or else would not God come through and save us? Well, God has an amazing way of clarifying our confusion. He has this way of clearing up the confusion in our minds, in our hearts, doesn't he? And so he begins to clear up the confusion by explaining, first of all, in verse 1, that I am not the problem. God says clearly that the problem is not with me. Notice what he says here. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God is saying, neither my power nor my compassion is the problem here. You see, he says his hand is not short to save. And when he talks about his hand, he's talking about his, his, his mighty power and what he uses to act in power is his arm, his biceps, bigger than mine, right? Powerful biceps, his hand or his arm. And this is just an image to describe how God accomplishes things. And his power, we know, is unlimited. His mighty hand, his power. But he also says that neither is his ear too dull that it cannot hear. Now, what does God use the image? Obviously, God doesn't have an ear, but but the image is to convey something to us about God. What would the ear be used for? (laughs) It would be to hear people's pleas, right? 
So you could say, in a sense, it's God's compassion, right? So he says, my ear is not too dull to hear. It's, it's not a lacking of my compassion. That's the issue here. My hand is not too short, nor is my ear too dull. I am not lacking in power, and I am not lacking in compassion. The problem is not over here. <laughs> the problem is not with me. And by the way, I just want to make it clear that this is always the case. The problem is never with God. God is never to blame as if he were a problem that needed to be solved. The problem is never with God. There is nothing ever wrong with God's arm or with God's ears. We must always realize that the problem is not with God and it can never be with God. There is nothing ever wrong with God, no matter how we feel, because we will feel like there is, and no matter how things appear, and it will appear like there's something wrong with God, right? And the reason is because God is always the same. He is, he is always the essence of perfection, and He never changes. God is infinitely great, and He is never lacking in power or compassion. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there goes that theory, right, out the door. <laughs> but so God makes it clear exactly what the problem is in verse 2. He moves from saying, I'm not the problem, but he says, this is what the problem is. He puts his finger on what the problem, exactly what the problem is. And he says, I am not the problem, you are the problem. And specifically, your sin is the problem. Notice what he says. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God is saying here that sin is what was separating them from God. And in particularly, separating them from God's saving power. We need to understand that sin is always a separator. If we are to understand sin and this confusion that's around us in this world today that would say very different definitions of what sin is and what it's about, but if we were to understand sin, we understand that it always, always separates. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from each other. Sin is the great separator. Sin separates. So what is sin? Let me, let me just define sin. I know we probably all know what it means, but let me just remind us what it is so we're all in the same um, boat here. Sin is any, any deviation from our rebellion against God's good and rightful rule. And we know that God rules through his word, right? So it's any deviation from God's good and rightful rule. And he rules us through his word. So the question is, what does it mean then to be separated from God? What, what does it actually mean to be separated from God? And notice what it says here is that what it means to be separated from God is that his face has turned away from you. And so these are images to help us understand what it means to be separated from God. Now we know that we cannot ever escape the presence of God. 
We know that God always knows what we're doing. He always sees what we're doing. So it's not saying here that somehow we've removed ourselves from the presence of God, right? So then what is it saying? What is this separation? And when it says that his face is turned away from you, what it means is his goodness, his favor, his pleasure, his saving favor is not on you, (laughs) right? God hiding or turning his face from you refers to his turning his favor away from you. And here is a picture of God turning his face that helps us understand what that means, right? When someone turns their face towards you and smiles, it it just gives us the image of someone um, whose favor is towards us. But in this instance, he's turned away. And so what are the effects of God separating himself from from his people, turning his face from his people? And the answer is God does not hear their, their prayers, right? We saw that in 58 verse 3, the first part. God was not going to hear their prayers. And once again, it doesn't mean the, the syllables don't reach God. It's not like he doesn't understand what they're saying, right? <laughs> once again, God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. He's everywhere. What it means is that God is not going to favorably listen to their prayers. He's not going to come and save them and deliver them from the enemies. In other words, he's going to let the Babylonians take over and defeat them and take them into captivity. God cannot pay attention to people's cries for blessing when they are embracing sin. If you're embracing sin and crying out to God for mercy at the same time, God will not listen. And that's what Proverbs 15 verse 29 says, right? God won't listen to those prayers. And we can see the effects of sin when we look at the Garden of Eden at the very beginning or when we look at the cross. Remember the Garden of Eden? A man was enjoying the blessing of God's favor in his presence. And what happened after they sinned? They were kicked out. Of God's presence. They could not remain in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Right? How about the cross? What did Jesus say on the cross? Those, those words that kind of ring in our ears. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God turned his back on his son for our sakes. Sin separates. The ultimate effect of sin is eternal separation from God in hell. Sin that is not turned from and repented of will lead you to hell. Hell is the ultimate and eternal separation from the favor of God. And you might say, really, that every problem in your life, every problem... And every problem in this world can be traced back to sin. If there was no sin, there would be no problems, right? And because of the fall, the world is broken and does not work right. And that is the result of sin. I do want to make one qualifying point here that I think is very important that we understand. This does not mean 
that every problem in your life can be traced back to a specific sin. (laughs) That creates tons of problems. And that's very dangerous, just like the problem with Job. Remember Job? Job was suffering because he was righteous, right? And yet his friends were determined that there was some particular sin that had brought on those things. Now, yes, the suffering was because of the fall. It all is. All suffering is because of the fall. It wouldn't be here without the fall. So, yes, every, sin is, uh, every problem is because of sin. But we, and sometimes we can trace it back to some sin, but not always. And in this case, it is clearly traced back to their sin, right? All right. So God, thankfully, does not leave his people with a general diagnosis of their problem, right? He doesn't just say, your problem is sin, and then leave them there and go on. He graciously and compassionately describes specifically what the sin is that separates them from him from his people. And we see that in verses 3 through 8. And what you might say is going on in these verses is that God is holding up a mirror for his people to see to look in and to see what they are truly like. The Bible does two things. It reveals to us the truth of who God is. His glorious, magnificent goodness and greatness and power. And it reveals to us the ugliness and wickedness of who we are. (laughs) Right? So every verse you can say, what does this say about God and what does this say about me? And you would get it right to some extent. It's going to reveal your need for God and how needful He is in our lives, that He is great and mighty to save, right? So what God shows the people here in us is the prevalence and pervasiveness of our sin, just the all-encompassing nature of our sin. This is an incredible picture of our sinfulness He gives to us. And just so you know, I'm not making this up. That this is also true of us today, apart from Christ, that this is our path, this is our hearts, apart from the transforming work of God. And just so you know this is true of us today, I want you to understand that Paul used this in his argument. He used uh, verses 7 through 8 in his argument in Romans 3, verse 15 through 17, to make the point of how sinful we all are. So I'm not making this up and saying this is you and me. Paul says that this is you and me. (laughs) Paul says that this is all of us. This is revealing of our sinful natures. And God is pointing it out. And God is exposing it. And God is magnifying before their eyes. He's showing them who they are by holding them up to the mirror of God's word. We should be thankful that the Bible never glosses over sin, but rather tells us the hard truths the hard, real truths of who we are so that we can see the reality of ourselves and our sinfulness. It is good, although not pleasant, for us to see ourselves and our sinfulness, just as it is good for a physician to tell you the reality of the disease that's in you, because only then is it possible for healing. We need to hear these words, and we need to understand who we are and the reality of our sinfulness, if we're to ever find healing in our lives. This is also a good reminder that God sees everything you do. That there is nothing you can hide from God. That He is fully aware of everything about you. And so we need to stop thinking that somehow we can hide from God. 
that is utter foolishness. It's insanity to think that somehow God doesn't see what we're doing. God knows and he tells us exactly what we're like. So the description of sin that he gives here, the description that makes God angry at them and turn his face away from them, is that they are acting in harmful and destructive ways towards one another. Notice verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Notice the word hands here. In some of the versions, uh, they don't say hands as it should say because it helps you to, to understand what he's saying here. Hands refers to our power and our actions, right? What we do, how we act. Just like it did for God. And here we are looking at how man acts and how man uses their power and how man does things, right? But notice the contrast in hands. Notice we just looked at what God does with his hands, that his hands are not too short to save, the greatness of God's hands. Now we're looking at man's hands. And in contrast to God's hands, they're completely opposite, aren't they? They're described as murderers. Now this could mean literally taking the life of someone, or it could mean figuratively murdering someone by hating them and harming them and being destructive towards them. Either way, it's harming others and doing violence to others, treacherous things to others, hurting others for our own sakes and our own purposes and our own gain. So what you might say here is that sin not only separates you, right? Sin separates, we said that, but sin also destroys. Sin always separates and sin always destroys. It breaks down. It corrupts. It's a disease that kills. And the consequence, and notice what the consequence here, it's, you can never go away without consequence. Sin always has consequences. And it says here that their hands are stained with blood. They are guilty. And guess what? They cannot get the guilt off of their hands. They can't wash it off of their hands. They can't get the, the guilt off of them. They are continually stained with blood. It's ever before them. I heard it compared to the story of Macbeth by Shakespeare and how Lady Macbeth commits a murder and tries to get the blood off of her hands, but she can't do it. All the oceans of the world can't scrub off the guilt that she has. And the same thing is true with us. So God continues to describe their sin. This time he describes how they sin with their mouths. Not only with their hands, but also with their mouths, right? He says they were speaking in harmful and destructive ways to others. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongues mutters wickedness. Now, if you remember and you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, do you remember what Isaiah said when he faced the reality of this all-powerful and almighty God? He said that my lips are unclean. He described himself as having unclean lips. And what a description of our sinfulness. If you want to look, and we don't have time, but look at Jeremiah 9, verse 3 through 7. It's just this description 
of the sinfulness of God's people. And it's all about their tongues. Wickedness just comes out of us, right? It's de- that whole passage is devoted to the wickedness of their tongues. In Proverbs 12, verse 22, says that God hates the lying lips. God hates the lying lips. He hates the liar. Strong words. We need to understand that what comes from our lips reveals our hearts. If you want to know what your heart looks like, you know, we can't, like, examine our hearts. We can't go in there and look at it and know exactly what it looks like. But you can know what your heart looks like by examining the words that come out of your mouth. The entirety of them. Not just the ones you say in your, when you're in a good place around the people you love, but the entirety of your words. They reveal what you're really like. You can't escape that reality. God also describes their sin as manipulating the justice system to fulfill their own unjust purposes. They use the law to get their wicked purposes accomplished, right? Notice verse 4. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Wow, if that doesn't describe our day and age, then what does? You know, we use the justice system to manipulate, to get our ways, to get whatever we want to get. We sue everything just to get a little bit of money. Anything we can possibly sue to get our way, we'll do it so we can get a little more money. Any way to get our advantage. And by the way, this is a recipe for disaster in any civilization. When the justice system is corrupt, when everyone uses it to get their own advantage, then your society is on the precipice of falling apart, right? It can't stand together. It can't hold up when it is so corrupt. God piles up these pictures. Uh, God piles up his point here by giving us images and pictures to help us understand the nature and consequences of our sin. And he, he uses the picture of an adder's egg and a spider web in verses 5 through 6. And so what you can kind of think of, you can think of your actions as giving birth to something, right? When you, when you act in one way or another, it's giving birth to something. And the question is, is what you're giving birth to good or bad, <laughs> right? And what they are giving birth to are described as adder's eggs and spider's webs. And so an adder's eggs... Egg might look good on the outside, it might look just like a normal egg, but when it hatches, a venomous uh, snake comes out, right? And it kills. And so you might say, well, let's destroy the egg, right? <laughs> let's get rid of the egg. But when, it, when you destroy it, when you crush it, sorry, <laughs> the first one was it's poisonous <laughs> on the inside. When you eat them, you die. The second one is the poisonous um, spider that comes out, and it kills you when you crash it, when you, when you crush it, when you take it apart. Inside of that egg is a poisonous, poisonous spider that kills. Then the other picture is of a spider's web, right? You try to build your house or your, your clothing out of a spider's web. It might look, glisten in the, in the sun. It might look pretty useful and helpful, but, but, but it's not. It can't support anything. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't cover you. It falls apart. 
And this piling on of metaphors is simply to show the destructive nature of sin. It does you no good. It's destructive. It's unhelpful. And then notice God describes the manner in which they were pursuing sin. It's not just that sin is destructive, bloody hands, words destructive, um, just like an, an adder's egg and a spider web. It does you no good. But they are in in, in pursuit, in great pursuit of their sin. They are running after sin passionately. Notice that they cannot get enough of their sin. In verse 7, their feet are swift to run towards evil. They are in pursuit of it. They can't get enough of it. They love their evil. They love their wickedness. It consumes them. And they are running after it. As if they can't live without it. It is everything to them. You know, it's interesting what motivation can do when you love something, right? When you pursue it. It can make you run really hard. When I tell my kids to clean up the room, sometimes they're like, ah, you know, there's a little, little slowness to it. But then I say, you know, um, you can eat a snack if you get it done fast. Whoa! All of a sudden they become really quick at cleaning the room, right? And the same is true with all of us, right? Motivation gets us moving, And so there's a love affair with their sin that motivates and moves them. God continues to say that the path they are on is crooked and absent of peace in verse 8. You can't find peace in that path. And so if we're honest, the mirror that God holds up to the Jews does not merely show their wickedness, but also shows us our natural sinfulness in our hearts. Do you see yourself here? Do you see your natural tendency, apart from the grace of God, to follow the same path? If we are honest, we would see the ugliness of ourselves if we were to look at the mirror that God puts before his people. So when God shines a light on the problem and exposes it, what is the right response? Well, the right response is what we see In verses 9 through 17, and the right response is a response that laments our sin, that mourns over our sin, and that confesses our sin. And that's exactly what we see here. Here is a confession of the reality of the sin that God just exposed. And what we see here is an indication of, that God is at work in the hearts of his people. Right? Now there's a significant shift here in the, in the, from the third person to the first person. In other words, there's an ownership taking place of, of the sinfulness that was just exposed. It moves from you are doing this to we are doing this. <laughs> right? You notice the difference there? God has exposed their sin. This is what you were doing. And now they say, we, I have done this. Right? This is us. It's ownership of the sin that has just been exposed. You could also describe this confession as a a lament, um, similar to what we see in Psalms. A a lament is a prayer of confession. It's, It's a prayer of great sorrow over our sin. It is something that has been largely lost in our day. 
You know, all, it's, it's often the case that, that every song we sing, that every um, thing we, we hear preached on is, is, is always rejoicing when there is a really healthy, important part of lament that should be a part of our diet. We should even sing laments, right? We live in a fallen world where, where the already is, and not yet is part of our existence, that we're going there, we rejoice, but yet we're fallen and we live in a fallen world, so lament is entirely appropriate even to sing at times. God honoring confession agrees with God's assessment. Notice what it says here. That it is my sin that keeps God's saving righteousness at a distance from me. And that's what the lament says here, the confession. Notice verse 9. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. So, therefore is a really important word here. He has just made all these accusations God has. And then what they say here is, therefore, in light of all these accusations, this is the reality that we're experiencing. The absence of God's favor. The reality of God's judgment on our lives. So they're taking um, personal account of what they've done. And they're agreeing with God that, yes, this is the result of their actions. He says, therefore, justice is far from us. What does it mean by justice? That's a big word here. Injustice and righteousness can mean a couple different things. Justice and righteousness can refer to God's righteousness, who he is and how he works. Or justice and righteousness can refer to what is required of us as God's people, right? In verses 9 through 10, speak of both cases. This is what's going on here. They have not acted righteously, and therefore, it is not righteous for God to act in saving them. God is not going to act righteously in saving them, because they have acted unrighteously. Do you kind of get what's going on here? They rejected justice, therefore justice and the sense of deliverance is far from them. If you look at Isaiah 56, verse 1, it basically says the same thing. No justice, no salvation. And by the way, God often refers to his salvation as bringing righteousness near. It is the righteous thing for God to save his people. And so he bears his righteousness in delivering us and fulfilling his promises to us. It is a righteous thing for God to save his people. And it's an unrighteous thing For God to save those who are outside of his favor. Listen to verse 18. I mean, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Notice that last word. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God is justice and will save his people. That's what it says there. He is righteous. It's over and over again 
If you read Isaiah, you'll see the same phrase. God's righteousness and justice works to save his people. We also see here that God-honoring confession acknowledges that because of my sin, I am therefore in a pathetic situation of hopelessness far from salvation. In other words, sin never delivers on its promises. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. Just this pathetic picture of people groping around in the darkness and stumbling over themselves. And so the question is, what is the light that they want to find? What is the light? They are blind. They don't, they're not just blind. They don't even have eyes. And, 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 and they want the light, but they can't get there. What is the light? And the light is the saving work of God. The light is the righteous saving of God, is his mighty, powerful intervention that saves. And so they are stumbling around like blind people. Blind to the light of God's salvation. They are completely lost and unable to find their way. And this indicates the problem is not the light. Notice what it says, at noonday. At noonday, the light is shining at its brightest. The problem is within them. And there needs to be a miracle, right? It's not just that their eyes are sickly, that their eyes are not working right. They don't even have eyes. They need a new creation. And the problem is inside of them. A spiritual lack of vision. They cannot see the salvation of God. They are blind to it. And notice they are growling in dismay at their condition and moaning for salvation. They are frustrated. They are dismayed at their condition. Even a little light would be welcome, but they don't have any at all. What a hopeless situation. What a great unrest. But this is the situation of the world, isn't it? Salvation is far from them. And by the way, this is exactly what God said in Deuteronomy 28, verses 28 through 29, would be the reality of the curse on his people if they rejected him. Notice the incredible similar language we see here that God promised he would give to them if they rejected him. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. Isn't that stunningly amazing the way God told them exactly what would happen? That's exactly what was happening. God-honoring confession acknowledges that my sin is piled up before God. And that if it were to testify against me in the court of law, it would find me guilty as charged. We see that in verses 12 through 13. Here is this courtroom setting. God is the, is the judge and your sin is the persecutor. Your, your sin is persecuting you. It's, it's standing up saying you are guilty. And God has your sin piled up before you. Right? You are guilty as charged. You can't escape it. God sees everything. God sees your sin. It is right before his eyes. There's no such thing as secret sins. Let me remind you of this, even though I, we already mentioned it. It is totally insanity to think we can do sin and get away with it. There is nothing more insane, I think I've said that a few times, than when you and I sin. You know, what, what, to think about it, um, when you're around someone that you esteem and someone you honor, right, you act differently. Right? But to think that the God of the universe sees everything we do. 
and yet we still sin. That's an amazing thought. God-honoring confession acknowledges that it is my sin that prevents anything good and right from entering my life. You see that in verses 14 through 15. The image here is incredible. And we're going to have to end with the confession. I, I realize that. <laughs> but notice the, notice the incredible way that everything good is trying to enter the city, but it can't. It's almost a, a someone called it a parable. A parable of... Um, of, of what is trying to enter the city, of these guests that can't get into the city. Notice justice knocks at the gate but is turned away. Righteousness stands far off and doesn't even try to enter. The notice truth and honesty stumbles in the public squares where business is done. It makes no appearance. Uprightness is, is not allowed even to enter. And what is amazing is that those who turn from sin are prey to the animals, the animal-like people. You know, they are not prized and rewarded for their righteousness. They are defeated and destroyed. That is a society turns opposite and backwards on its head. But nothing, righteousness, justice, truth, uprightness cannot enter the city. It is banned from the city, is kept out of the city. And therefore the hopeless situation is presented to us. And what is amazing here is that notice that Isaiah takes the responsibility along with his people. Isaiah is making this confession along with all of his remnant. This would be the remnant who's speaking here. With Isaiah, the people of God who believe in him. And he joins them in their confession. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say it's you out there who are guilty. He says we are guilty. We are sinners. And here is Isaiah joining them. In their sinful confession of their sinfulness. Just like Ezra and Daniel who confessed solidarity with their people. And unlike the prophet, we have a tendency, don't we, to stand aloof from our society. And to direct the accusation at everyone else and not take any part in the confession. You know, that is a very dangerous thing for the church to do. We need to repent in turn. <laughs> We need to confess our sin and realize that we are a part of the problem. And that God is the only answer. And that's what the church should be doing. The world won't confess their sin, <laughs> but the church does. So what is also significant about this confession is that there is no attempt at shifting responsibility or justification for sin. No ifs, ands, or buts, right? No evasiveness, no justification just confession. You know, I don't know how many times people have come to me and said things like, I've always believed, right? Ever since I was born, I've always believed, right? And I understand there might be a little bit of truth to that in the sense you might have believed there was a God, right? But in order to believe in God, you have to believe the truth of what he says about you, right? In order to believe the truth about God, you have to believe the truth of what he says about you. And who has believed the truth about them since they were born, <laughs> You know, and no one has. And in fact, there's often a violent, a violent battle that ensues in our hearts when we come to the front of the realization that my righteousness is not real, that it's fake. And we do violence and have to bow before God. We've had a veneer of righteousness. Praise God for those who have not. And they can just bow to God and confess, it's true, it's true. I'm not who I pretend to be. But none of us have believed. We're all rotten to the core. 
who desperately need a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And such confession is part of true conversion and of revival among God's people. Revival thrives amid a true reappraisal of ourselves and our weaknesses. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? We're not there yet at the great, magnificent um, work of God who comes as a mighty warrior. And we'll look at that next week. But what do we do with this? Well, I think we need to be a people who take an honest assessment of our lives. We need to let the light of the word of God shine into our hearts and our minds and our souls. We need to let it expose the ugliness of our hearts. Take a good look at yourself through the mirror of God's word. And then respond by confessing and lament over your sin. Consider how your sin has affected you. Consider how your sin has affected others. And consider how God thinks of your sin. Believers are those who confess their sins regularly. Not as to save themselves over and over again. But because that's their heart and their nature. They're living out the reality of those who are constantly turning towards God. So it is the nature of a believer to repent and turn constantly throughout their lives. And then think about the greatness of God's answer. And we will look at that more next week. That God has an answer and he's Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's sufficient to save you and and to deliver you into his kingdom. He is powerful and mighty to save. And rejoice that he is coming to save. Take courage that God has not forgotten you. And praise God for the grace of confession and the grace of lament. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it exposes the innermost parts of our being. Thank you, Lord, that you crush us. Thank you, Lord, that you destroy the false images we have created of ourselves. And Lord, in our creating of our idols, Lord, we have made you look very small and insignificant. And Lord, forgive us, God. Forgive me, Lord, for the words that have come out of my mouth that have not been pleasing to you. Forgive me for my actions, Lord, that have not been pleasing to you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would cause us, Lord, cause us to reflect your image. May we speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we speak of your great and powerful and mighty saving word. May we proclaim the greatness of our God with our mouths. And Lord, may we act in such a way that we show the goodness of our God, that you are changing us and transforming us to reflect your image. And God, I pray if there's anyone in here who is bound in the dungeon of their sin, I pray that today you would break them free. I pray that you, they would cry out to you to save them from their sins. And Lord, your word says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We thank you that you are a mighty God and you are mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen.